This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Hi, my name is Jamie Guile, and uh, the scripture for this morning can be found in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 can be found on page 810. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The reading of the word. Well, let me add my good morning. If we have a may, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you guys are with us. If you're uh, tuning in online, uh, welcome. And if you're down the overflow room, we're glad you guys are serving the rest of us in the room. I want to take a second just to do a little family business before we jump into the sermon. Uh, I'm actually excited to to engage this text, but I thought about making this a sermon application, and it felt a little forced, so I just want to just address it straight up. So family business-wise, I want to talk about masks just for a second, which I know is everybody's favorite topic, and no one has strong opinions about it. Uh, So it's a really easy thing to address in a room this size where there's opinionated people. Um, But let me just kind of bring you into our heart as a church. So as we hit the one-year mark this week, which is profound to think about all that's happened this last year and all the questions we've had to wrestle with that we never thought were even questions we'd have to deal with. As we wrestle with the application of that, we've watched public leadership and we've dealt with kind of private questions and concerns. We face stresses and struggles as individuals. There's a lot that we're processing together. And so there's a a way that we walk through moments like this privately. And then there's also a public way that we walk through these things. Um, And by that, I mean when we gather with other people. And so I'm happy for us to be all across the spectrum as a church when it comes to all the political issues, all the vaccination issues, all the freedoms and rights and the the ways you feel comfortable in some settings and not in other settings. Man, I want us to be a diverse body that has lots of freedoms, and I want us to celebrate that, that we don't just come from one tribe or one stripe of society, but from all over, the way the scriptures talk, where you have Jews and Gentiles and slaves and frees and men and women and barbarians, Scythian. You have this whole group reaching kind of together in a family because the gospel cuts through all those dividing lines. So that's, that's a good thing. But it makes some challenges when we come and we gather together. And so I just want to get on the front side of this as we start to face warmer weather, as states start to lift some of their mask bans, as we get vaccinated and like a third of you guys feel bulletproof now as you've got your vaccine. And we're still wrestling with like, how long are we going to do this? Because the goal is that we wouldn't always wear masks, right? So even last week when I saw Texas kind of lifting their ban, I had this like, oh my gosh. And I was like, wait, that's kind of the goal. And are we ready for that? And how do we think about that? And so let me just tell you, our pastor's heart is that we would kind of take the most compassionate and loving response. And you might disagree with us on what we think that is, but in our mind, that means kind of moving towards those who feel most vulnerable, moving towards those who feel most insecure, moving towards those who are most concerned, moving towards those who have the most at risk when it comes to public health issues. And so we have chosen as a church to kind of keep our mask uh, mandate in place to ask you to wear them the entire service, even when you're interacting with people, to keep them above your nose and wear them correctly, so that we are yielding to our brothers and sisters. The, the Bible would speak to Christians not so much in terms of what you are owed or what your rights are or what your freedoms are, but in what your opportunity is to serve, to sacrifice, to give, to prefer somebody ahead of yourself. And so if that's kind of the biblical ethic in all things, it should apply to our marriages, it should apply to dating, it should apply to how we do our jobs, and it should apply to how we relate around this really tricky issue as a family. And so our pastors, as we've prayed, feel like the most loving thing that we can do is to keep our masks on, keep encouraging you to do that, 
realizing there's people who are really vulnerable in our body. There's people who still haven't gathered with us because they're really concerned health-wise. And so for us to do our job and be responsible as best we can, even though there's some controversy around that, even though there's lots of different opinions on that, of the effectiveness of masks and all those things, we want to yield toward the, the most compassionate posture and ask you to joyfully do that with us, to join us in that. I had a conversation with somebody this week, and we were talking about kind of biblical passages to relate to this, and it's kind of hard, right? It's not a category the scripture would deal with directly, but we talked about, there's a section in scripture where, where Paul is wrestling with this idea of meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and some people thinking that that meat has power in and of itself, and some people thinking that it doesn't. So some people felt free to eat that meat, some people felt unfree to eat that meat, and so they had this long debate and conversation. It was an issue when they gathered because that was often what you gathered around and around the table. That was the way you got meat, and so there was a debate about what do we do? Do we yield our preferences? Do we debate this thing? How do we engage this? And we talked a lot about where that illustration breaks down. It's not a one-to-one parallel. But the idea of not insisting that everybody thinks the way I think and to realize if it's going to violate someone's conscience, I would gladly yield my freedoms, even if I disagree, even if I think there might be a better way. Their, their conscience matters more to me than my freedoms is the way the passage reads. And so as we talked, and that just felt like the best way for us to go forward. Our COVID team is praying, and they're watching the numbers, and they're on the CDC website, and they're engaging Johnson County numbers specifically. And so as they make recommendations to our pastors, we'll kind of keep you up to date on that. But I wanted to first say thank you. I'm not actually experiencing a lot of conflict around this in our body, so thank you for loving your brothers and sisters. Uh, thanks for those of you who have, who have kind of yielded your preferences there. Um, let's keep doing that even as things might... We get a little more fatigued and a little more worn out. Let's keep loving our brothers and sisters. And if you've got like specific questions or concerns or you want to dialogue some more, then I would love to have that conversation. So we'd love to listen. We'd love to learn from you. Um, we'd love to have a real dialogue, not just listen to you and then tell you what I think you should think. Actually have a real dialogue around this because it is an important issue and we want to do it really well as a church. So thank you. Keep going. And that perspective, I think, will serve us not just in this season with masks, but forever as a church when it comes to the opportunity we have towards compassion and yielding our preferences for the sake of other people. It'll make our marriages stronger. It'll make our friendships richer. It'll make us better employees. It'll make us better friends. And it will help us get through this season together as a family. So, so, so thank you and uh, keep, keep going. If you have questions, let's talk about it. Okay, let me pray for us real quick. And um, you know, like, how do you make an application? Well, I almost had it in one moment. I was like, that's going to feel super forced. Let me just engage this outside of that um, as a family matter. So, so with that, uh, you've heard my heart. Let me now pray for us, and we'll jump into this text. So Jesus, I pray just for my brothers and sisters now. Even as I say this, I realize uh, I kind of kicked a hornet's nest in some ways. Um, I just pray you would calm that by your spirit, uh, that we don't have to have like a, a political agenda in the way that we love each other. We don't have to have... Um, all the answers to be able to yield to each other. And, and I just pray for uh, people all across the spectrum in our body that they could um, have in their hearts and minds uh, kind of what the Spirit would call out of, of the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness, that those things would mark us as a people. And again, not just for this moment with a pandemic, that would be too small of a request, God, but that, would that mark us as a people um, always going forward in, in every area of our life? So then, of course, it would apply to this as well. So, so help us with that. And then as we engage this text, um, I'm joking about not trying to make a sermon applications, but, but would you make application from this sermon to, to our regular lives, to the places where we feel stressed, to the spaces where we feel overwhelmed? Would you actually use this text that's familiar to a lot of us and kind of provocative to others? Or would you use it to help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16. So we've been in this series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're just a couple of weeks in, and, and to be really honest, uh, we're going to be in this thing for probably more than a year. And I'm excited about that because this is one of the most famous messages that Jesus gives. It's actually pretty comprehensive. It's not exhaustive, but it does touch on lots of things. And we've just been saying it touches on where you live your life. So we're going to talk about issues with marriage and lust and anger and anxiety and money and how you pray and how you actually engage with God both privately and publicly. It's, it's the questions that you have. So I'm excited for us to slow down, to engage with the text, and, and to walk through it. And then as I prepare for this week, if I could be really honest with you, I got, I got pretty sad which is not normal for me. Um, so anxiety, I'm real familiar with. Shame is a pretty close companion. Um, sadness is not something that I do very often. I actually kind of avoid it, and, and that's probably why I don't do it 
great. It's not that I don't get sad. It's that I normally eat my way out of sadness. So I have a therapy regimen that involves everything in the Edo family group. So anything with Doritos and Fritos and Cheetos, and that's where I normally go. But it's Lent, and I'm giving up snacking for Lent. So I had to feel my feelings instead of eat my way through my feelings. And so on Monday, I just had this overwhelming sadness. And so I called somebody, right? So I'm trying to wrestle with it. I called somebody, hey, would you pray for me? And I thought, okay, no, big boy, you got to just pray yourself. And so I just began to pray, like, God, why do I feel so sad? And it was like God in my car shut the door and almost began to cry kind of sadness, which again, I'm a big boy. I don't normally do that, which also means it's pretty pent up. And it's just like right there below the surface. If you slow me down, it catches me real fast, to be honest. So I started just going like, man, what's going on? Because it was kind of surprising because it was a beautiful day. Like, and in some ways, I'm like living the dream. I love my job. I love my family. Like, everything is going pretty well. I can't put, put like, finger on stuff inside my personal life that would, would make me sad. So I began to pray into that. And then I thought, like, oh, Lord, I am carrying a weight of, for our people. Like, a lot of you are dealing with a lot of sadness. And it's a joy to come alongside of you in that. But I don't come alongside of you in that like a robot. I come alongside of you as a shepherd who, who feels what you feel. Right? So a lot of you just in the last 10 days have, have gotten really hard news. And you've wrestled with really difficult things. And there's stuff that feels really painful. So I thought, and that might be part of it. I did think about where we are just in our culture and kind of that one-year mark of the pandemic. And so I was kind of feeling all the change and loss that's happened. I think I was looking forward as well to kind of like where we are as a culture and where we're going. And I remembered last Sunday in the middle of the sermon, we get to this persecution section in in chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. And Jesus just says, blessed are those who are persecuted because you inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to talk about there'll be people that malign you and harm you because of Jesus. And and I said something like, hey, those days are coming where where we're going to be in a culture quickly where we find ourselves at odds with people, and it, it actually doesn't seem like advantageous to be Christian, and actually our culture turns in on you. And so I thought about that for a little bit, and, and that felt a little bit inflammatory, to be honest, but I do think that that's true, and I think I, I was feeling like, what does the next decade look like for us as a people, and some of the sadness where there's rifts in relationships, and people that are walking away from faith, and places where like public scandal in the church has caused people just to to lose hope. And there's people that you know that need the hope of Jesus who, who now have turned away from him. And so I thought about that. I thought, man, maybe that's where some of this is coming from. It's like a, a personal thing. It's a corporate thing. And it's this bigger situation. But I dealt with some sadness. And I tried to bring that to the Lord and just ask him to speak to me and, and to help me. Because the passage last week kind of dealt with, like, how does the world deal with you in this idea of persecution? And so I just started thinking through, like, how do we deal with the world? What's the right response in a world that is really sad, that is really broken, that sometimes is hostile to your faith and your positions, your heritage, your traditions, the things that you believe, and not just your background and denominational preferences, but the stuff you hold dear about who God is and where that's costing you. And so, so I just began to pray into that. And so the, as I said of this text, which came later on in the week, I thought, oh, God, thank you that you're actually sharing with us how to engage with the world. So if last week's passage ended with how the world engages with Christians through persecution and resistance, this passage deals with how Christians should engage in the world. So I'm going to talk specifically to Christians, and I know that everybody watching or in the room is a follower of Jesus, so I'm really thankful you're here. I think you'll hear as we dialogue together about what Christians are supposed to do in society. I think it will actually resonate with you. I think it will actually validate some of your concerns with Christian subculture and some of the questions you have. Wait, if Christians are supposed to be salt and light, how come they look like everybody else? I think it will actually validate some of the questions you have, but it should orient us back to like what God actually asks of us. And it'll paint a picture for you of what he's calling his people to. Even if you don't yet believe it or you're struggling with some wounds you've experienced from Christians, I think hearing this text as a non-believer will, will not just be like winsome, but it should help you understand the heart of God a little bit. And even at least how God sees the culture and the, and the world around us. So, so that's where we want to go. I want to engage this text, and it's actually fairly familiar. So let me just read it again one more time, starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking in the most famous sermon ever. He says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, which is pretty ominous. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. It can't be hidden. Nor do people put a light under a, of a lamp and put it under a basket, but they actually put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. Okay, in a lot of ways, this is a really simple text. The main idea is really obvious to us. How we apply it might be a little tricky, and where we are resistant to it might be more tricky. I think the way Jesus says it is kind of provocative, but the simple meaning of the text is pretty plain. Christians are to be in the world like salt and light. They are to be affecting the world around them. They're to be shining a light in the darkness, and they are to be kind of helping the essence of the culture and this preservation of the culture. So kids, let me just ask real quick, what happens when you put salt on something? It, it changes it, right? It gets more salty. And some of you guys like put salt on your salt, like you just love salt, I get it. But there's a sense where it's a pretty simple metaphor. Christians are supposed to be in the culture in a way that changes the culture. And you would imagine because Jesus is teaching this, it's change it for the good, right? This wouldn't be like over salt where you ruin something. This would be to salt something where it enhances it and brings out its flavor. And historians would tell us like salt is used everywhere in the ancient world. It was currency. It was used medicinally. You would use it in ways where you would kind of even rub babies with salt. You would use it in covenants. You would use it in your cooking. You would use it to actually be a preserver for your food. So think about before refrigeration. If you had fish or meat and it's going to go bad, what do you do with it? You, well, you rub it in salt and somehow that does something to it. I wonder, is that what's going on with beef jerky? There's something with the seasonings that like draw out some of the liquid or preserve it. I don't really understand how it works, but something, something magic happens when you rub salt on meat. It lasts a whole lot longer, right? So the ancient world used salt a lot. And historians would say it's everywhere. It's as ubiquitous as light. So salt and light are two very common metaphors, which is fascinating that Jesus would say, this is the way Christians are. Not superstars and spectacular and not on big stages. Christians are like the everyday elements of salt, which everybody had access to. Everyone understood it. Everyone used it in their daily life. And as simple as light which you experience from the sun as well as from lamps that you would light. These are very, very common elements. So, so what happens, kids, when you turn the light on? Changes the darkness a little bit, right? And the brighter the light, the, the less the darkness is there, right? But it, just a little bit of light actually dispels the darkness. And in this passage, we'll say all you can do is actually cover that light. A little bit of light, even a small LED light will actually light up the space around it. It changes the darkness, the only way you can stop that is by covering it with something and hiding it. Otherwise, when the light is on, it's impacting the darkness. So Jesus is saying, hey, in a real common, everyday, ordinary way, Christians are to live in relationships the way salt affects and flavors and preserves and the way that light actually pushes back darkness. There's kind of two sides of the same coin. One is this negative image of stopping decay. Another one is a positive image of, of pushing back Darkness, But he's basically saying the same thing. There's some parallelism between these two images. Again, I think they're two sides of the same coin. But look with me in verse 13. Just look at the similarities. You are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, you are the light of the world. So he just declares this is the way that it is. And then he gives a warning in both of those sections. And then verse 16 kind of ties it together of what is the purpose and what is the goal. Okay, so they're very simple. Again, the meaning is right there on the surface. Christians are supposed to interact in their world in a way that changes it. But here's where it gets kind of provocative. How do we do that? Or why do we do that? Or what's the instruction that he gives around that? And so I want to talk about identity. I want to talk about influence. And I want to talk about an invitation. Jesus starts with their identity. Did you notice that in verse 12? He just says, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Maybe if you have a pen, underline R in both of those. He says, Christians, this is true about you. He starts with their identity. Before he tells them what to do, he doesn't say, get out there and be salty or get out there and be really bright. He just says, hey, straight up, here's your identity. This is the way I made you. You already are salt. You already are Light, the normal, natural thing with salt and light is for it to impact the things around them in positive ways, both to stop the decay on one side and to push back the darkness on another. But Jesus begins with our identity. One, one pastor said that before you go to the do's, you got to start with the who's. 
He starts with identity of who you are before he tells you what to do. If you want to get fancier, he starts with the indicatives of what's true before he goes to imperatives, which is commands. He's been rooting kind of the kingdom of God is for the broken. It changes us from the inside out. And now he's saying this is your identity. You are already, as followers of Jesus, salt and light, which means you're not trying to muster something up. You're not trying to prove something. You're actually living your life from a place of already being loved and transformed, not trying to get or earn love through your behavior, because that changes everything. It's fascinating that Jesus starts with our identity, reminding us of what's true, because we actually, since we were born, have been on a quest for identity. And we're pretty indiscriminate. We'll ask everybody to name us, everybody to speak into our world, everyone to validate us. We'll use our bodies, we'll use our minds, we'll use our jobs, we'll use our bank accounts, we'll use our waistline, we'll use our family heritage, we'll use how much we know, we'll use how much we earn, we'll use what's in our bank account, we'll use our past, we'll use our future, we'll use our children or lack of children, we'll use our marital status or lack of marital status. We will use anything to build some identity. So for Jesus to start and just say, hey, hey, before you go further, as I'm telling you about how to live in this world, I'm not telling you to live in the world to get an identity from the world. I'm telling you, you already have this identity. And he says it's salt and it's light. Christians are supposed to live in the world the way Psalm 34, 8 says, that we should live in such a way that we taste and see the Lord is good so that other people can taste and see the Lord is good as a natural outflow of our identity. Uh, kids, it's like a seed. So in my backyard, we don't actually have any oak trees, but all of our neighbors do. So I get all of their acorns in my yard. And there's in the acorn, maybe you know this already, everything that gigantic tree needs is already in that little acorn. It's kind of crazy. All the DNA or the, I don't know if trees have DNA, all the stuff that tree, not a botanist or the son of a botanist, but, but the seed, right? That little acorn has everything the tree needs. It doesn't like one day wed with something else and it gets more of what it needs. It's all in that thing in seed form. And our identity is like that. You already have everything you need. Now, what happens is that seed grows and matures. It, it, it's uh, watered and it hits the sun and it, in the earth and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But everything inside that seed was already there as the identity of that tree. Now, there can be damage that can slow it down. There can be disease that can slow down the growth. But, but the essence of that tree is already in that little seed. Paul will use that kind of illustration later. And Jesus will talk about our lives as seeds that must be buried and die and come back alive in identity in Christ, right? It's passive in the sense that it's given to us. And everything you, already, um, everything you have already is all that you need, Jesus is saying. Which is fascinating because he's telling Christians how to live. And so you would think, here comes all the commands. Here's all the do's and don'ts and shalls and shall nots. Here's all the stuff that you should do. But what he first starts with is your identity, which I just think is so beautiful. And God's always designed his people to live in the world as light. So, So if we were to cruise through the Old Testament, you'd see all these commands and promises and Uh, exhortations to be this light that God has made us to be, right? Salt and light are the same kind of idea. So Isaiah 42 says this, I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. And Psalm 49, 6 says this, is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant to, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light For the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In the same way that Jesus in the next section is going to say, hey, I'm not telling you something new. This is the way it's always been. God always designed his people to be the way that his message would go out. Some of the sadness that I felt, I think, was like how frail that feels. And and I actually caught myself. It was just like a half a second. I was like, Lord, this seems like a crazy idea that you would entrust your glory to such frail people. And then I quickly went like, well, it must be so beautiful if it was your plan and your design more than just frail. like, hey, did you calculate that right? God must be doing something really beautiful to entrust his glory, his message, his redemption to people, right? Because we carry out the good news of who God is in the world around us. Fortunately, it's not limited to us. Fortunately, it's not all on our shoulders. But God's design and plan is that his people would be salt and light and always have been. That's our 
identity. Okay, I said we're pretty indiscriminate, though. We'll look at for identity every other place, which gets us into this second section, which is a warning about the nature of our influence. Because when we look for identity somewhere else, everything begins to break down. So being a Christian, having everything in seed form inside of you doesn't mean you always live like that. It doesn't mean you're acting according to who you really are. There's a call into the identity that you already have that we see throughout the scriptures. And the idea here of salt losing its saltiness and lights being hidden means you're not doing what you're designed to do. You're not actually living into the natural DNA of what it means for you to have your identity rooted in who God has made you to be. Instead, what you're doing is you're looking for identity somewhere else. And I get that from this idea of salt losing its saltiness or the light being covered or hidden. Because here's the deal. And man, this is like straight from commentaries. I have no idea how this would work. But the question is that this passage is, well, how does salt lose its saltiness? How does it lose its taste? Is that even possible? And people way smarter than me have said, actually, it's not possible for the salt itself to stop being salt. So it doesn't lose its saltiness. What happens is when salt gets mixed with other things, it becomes useless. So think about if your salt shaker dumped on the counter along with some sand, or you dropped your salt shaker on the dirt floor and you tried to scoop it up and put it back into the shaker, and now your salt is mixed with dirt and with sand, and you thought, well, I'm going to sit down at the table and I'm going to separate this out, it would be impossible, right? The way salt loses its taste or saltiness is when it becomes polluted or diluted or mixed with other things. What other things in Jesus' metaphor? It would be the identity that the world tells you you could or should or can't have through all the things that it promises you. When you take the pure identity that Christ gives you and you say, okay, I love that. I thank you for that. I'm grateful for that. And I also want to really impress people through my job and through my body and through, through what I know and through what I accomplish and through how much money I have and through who my parents are and through who my children are and through my marriage. I, also, I want to do Jesus for sure, but I also want to have identity. I want people to admire me and respect me for these other things. When that happens, it's the blending or the, the mixing of the salt that is the true identity with this other stuff, these other compounds. And when that happens, salt loses its saltiness and it's no longer good for what it was designed to do. If you rubbed salt and dirt on that meat, it wouldn't preserve the meat. If you sprinkled your food with salt and sand, it wouldn't taste amazing. It would actually be, be ruined. And so there's a warning in this to Christians whose identity is secure to stop engaging with the identity the world offers you because it mixes the metaphor. It mixes the image. It actually makes it confusing to the world around you. It would be like taking a lamp and then covering it. It would be like taking a lamp and, and hiding it. You just, wouldn't, you just wouldn't do that. So why would you say Christ is the light of the world and I'm also going to offer you hope in me and through my relationships and through what I can offer you sexually or materially or vocationally. And so there's hope in Jesus. But man, I can also give you lots of hope as well as an individual who's inside your life. And it would just be super confusing. Why would you hide the light of Christ through some other things that you kind of offer to people? And don't think like a cool Pinterest post where someone took a basket and made a lampshade out of it. This would be dangerous. Right, to put a lamp under a basket is an open flame. It's not an LED light. It's an open flame. So you don't cover flames with dried grass. It goes up and then, oh, your house is also made of grass. Boom, everything now is on fire. It's a really bad situation. This is actually a pretty dramatic situation. Jesus is saying, you just wouldn't do that. And a, a city on a hill, it, just, it actually can't be hidden. So, so I mentioned things are going great with our family. It actually, was this week was our 22nd wedding anniversary. And so Ada and I got away for two nights. We went to Holton, Kansas. Anybody? Anybody? Town of like 3,200. We found this like secret to just getting out of town about a mile and a half or an hour and a half, not a mile and a half, an hour and a half. It's enough time to unwind into small towns where there's nothing to do except eat some food and sleep. Dude, it's so romantic. It's amazing. That is our dream anniversary. So we're, we're driving into Holton, Missouri, and it's dark out there, man. It's all fields. And then off in the distance, you start to see some lights. And I'm like behind on the map. Adrian's navigating and I'm driving. I demand to know exactly where we are, even though I have no idea where we are. I keep asking the same question over and over again. But I can see Holton in the distance because of the lights that are there. And I thought, oh, that, that's just the way it's designed. Those lights, you don't have to do anything except just 
be lit. But what if people went around and they covered all those lights? Well, it'd be like, it'd be bananas. It would just wouldn't make any sense, nor would it make sense for the Christian to continue to wrap their life around with the things the world offers them for identity. All right, let me just kind of take you to some text in the New Testament that I think show us this. Because the constant temptation since you were born, because of who your parents are, both in your family tree as well as your spiritual parents of Adam and Eve, we have always been struggling with identity since the very, very beginning. God gives us a secure, attached identity. And because we have an evil one that whispers in our ear lies and temptations, we immediately began to try to build another identity or additional identity. And when that happens, everything begins to break, right? So far from being something that's actually pushing back the, the decay or shining light in the darkness, Christians actually begin to join the darkness, so let me take you to a couple of passages. If you want to flip there, you can, or you can just write these down. Let me take you to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's on page 1015, if you're in a pew Bible. Remember, Jesus has gathered his disciples, so Peter's on the front row here. Peter would have heard Jesus say this right from his lips, right at the beginning. Listen to the way Peter talks about being light, but warning us not to mix or pollute or blend the things the world offers us with this Light. Let me read a couple of verses, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Speaking of identity, it always starts with that who before it goes to the do. It starts with the indicative before it goes to the imperative. It starts with how you are loved before it tells you how to live in light of that love. You already are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is your identity, and the reason is so you can help other people come out of darkness into the light of Christ. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, remembering this world is not your home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or those who don't know God, don't don't know Jesus, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Sounds a lot like Matthew 5, verse 16. Peter says, hey, this is who you are. Your job is to shine light into the darkness. And then he warns them, hey, before you go any further, remember there's this idea that you want to attach yourself to the passions of the flesh. Let me tell you to stop doing that. Because when you do that, it mixes and blends, and there's this war that's raging against your soul for identity. For identity. That's second, that's first Peter chapter two. We take you to Philippians chapter two. This is the Apostle Paul. It's a letter to first century Christians. It's on page 981. In your people, if you're taking notes, Philippians 2, 12 to 15. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not now, not, not, so, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation. You already have it. Work it out. Figure it out how it looks in your life and do this with sober-mindedness, he says. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you. God's already doing this, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hey, you already have this salvation identity. You already have been given this from God. God's the one who's working it out in you. As you work it out, here's this warning. Stop grumbling and disputing and blaming in that space because you're defending your identity. You're needing something from somebody else. Stop doing that. You are to shine as lights in the world. One more passage from Paul. This is Ephesians chapter 5. And what I'm trying to do is show you this pattern between the call to have arrested identity and how that's tied to light, showing off the light of Christ, but this warning that we actually live in the darkness or that we're tempted by the darkness, right? There's a warning in this passage that salt wouldn't lose its saltiness or that lights wouldn't be hidden, although it's kind of crazy. You just wouldn't do that in the natural world. So the idea is, why is it happening spiritually? And some of it is because we don't recognize darkness as darkness. We think the darkness is a way to get better identity, a way to be loved, a way to actually be affirmed. And so we traffic in the things the world offers us. 
Assuming that we could take this salt that God gives us and blend it with other things. Believing, well, more must be better. And yet, by adding more, you actually not just ruin your identity, but you dilute and you pollute and it becomes useless. You, you actually hide the light. The light doesn't go away. The salt doesn't stop being salt. It just stops being useful. It stops doing what it's designed to do. All right, this is Ephesians chapter 5. It's actually kind of a long text. And what I love is this will go straight into marriage application, right? Intimate relationships are where we first live this out. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It's on page 978 if you're in a pew Bible. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in light of the love that God has given you in Christ, that he gave himself up for He accomplished all that for you on the cross. It's secure. It's rested. You already have it. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who has covetousness and is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This deception that you could have both. Therefore don't become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. So you have been in darkness, but now you're in light. So these temptations to, to the things he names, right, to sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and things with our mouth and crude joking, these things actually have no place. So he says, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The same idea of like working out your salvation. God, what does it look like for me to live in the world like salt and like light? He says, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's talking to Christians. Why would he do this? Why is this command so often throughout the scriptures? Because we are indiscriminate in our quest for identity, and we will go to everything to name us, everything to validate us, everything to speak to us. And so the letters of the New Testament are laboring to say to Christians, no, 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 no. I know you used to live this way. It's what you know. It's your reflex. It's the thing that makes the most sense to you. But stop seeking identity in that and actually pursue identity in what Christ has already done for you. Take no part in the fruits of, of, of darkness, but instead expose them right with this light. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Hey, 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 wake up. You know it's not working. Stop sleepwalking in this life. You know, blending the things of the world with the things of God just frustrate you. They confuse everybody else. It's not working. Hey, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Stop blending. This doesn't make any sense. Stop blending these things, making the best use of your time. Because the days are evil, there actually is darkness. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And instead of seeking identity from each other, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we'll go on to talk about how you do that in marriage. All right, what he's saying here is there's a constant struggle and temptation for the Christian. You feel it. You thought you were the only one. But it's all over the place throughout the history of the Bible and in our culture where Christians are tempted to take what they used to know for building their identity and to blend that in with what God has called them to as now salt and light. What's a little bit of sand? What's a few little rocks? What's a little bit of something else that would spice this thing up? It actually dilutes it. What about a little bit of hiding? What about a little bit of embarrassment? What about being in a world where I don't want to actually say I know Jesus because that's going to put me on the outs. It's going to put me in a space where I'm rejected. What if I just hid a little bit? No, no, don't do that. You don't hide lights under beds or under baskets. You actually put them on stands so they can shine in the world. There's a warning in this that we tend to blend our identity and look for identity in other places in ways that actually begin to break our witness. They confuse other people. 
And when this happens, it doesn't stay contained in your own little heart. A lot of what we see in the world around us, I think, with these big public Christian figures that are blowing apart left and right, is decades of walking out, loving both what God offers and what the world offers, and actually seeing their faith and their ministries as ways to get all the things the world promises of power and approval and comfort and control. So as our heroes are blowing apart in front of our eyes, it's not that they're worse than we are or that we're better than they are. It's that they stopped actually being salt and light and they blended their identity with their Christian um, identity from, from God and they blended it with what the world told them they should and could have as well. And so you get public scandal and abuse when Christians say, I'm following Jesus and I'm going to use that following Jesus to get power and approval and comfort and control from other people. And when that happens, actually, things don't just like stay quiet, they blow up. So you have big stage abuse and you have small private abuse. You have spaces where because we've blended, people actually get really hurt. So far from preserving against the decay, Christians join the decay. And far from pushing back the darkness through their light, they actually propagate the darkness. They, they perpetuate it. They actually live into it. And a watching world looks on and just goes, this doesn't make any sense at all. Like, why would I have all the shame and guilt of being a Christian? If they're going to do all the things I'm doing anyway, why don't I just leave the Christian part behind and just move to Because sand is good for sand. Sand and salt's kind of weird, but so what if we just did sand? What if we actually just live in the darkness rather than actually try to blend it with the light? And there's a warning that Jesus gives us. Hey, your identity is secure, but there's a temptation for you to, to dilute or pollute or to hide. Jesus would tell us to be in the world, but not of the world. And one of these is a refusal to be in the world, right? to not let your light shine. The other one is, is to be too much in the world where you're actually desiring the world to validate and to help you. So how do we relate to the world? The world, Jesus says, is going to hate you. It's going to persecute you when you follow me because you're standing against the darkness. And the temptation is to not live into your identity. It's actually to blend it with other things the world promises you. What do you do instead of that? Would you look with me in verse 16 as we go to close? It's in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's talked about identity. He's talked about the risk of blending our influence in a way that gets confused and muddled and hidden and darkened and, and useless. And now the invitation is to remember why Christ actually saved you to begin with so you could give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you could live these good works and give, give glory through the way that you engage in the world so that other people could actually see him as beautiful and glorious, which we've talked a lot about repentance. We don't know what you're feeling right now. I don't think the Spirit of God wants to traffic in non-redemptive shame that just says to you that you're bad. But there is a redemptive shame that says, hey, you're not living in light of your identity. Come back to where you're supposed to be. There's a, there's a healthy use of shame that says, hey, this is not who you're supposed to be. Our staff is reading a book called Rare Leadership. Man, it's like my favorite book of 2020 and in 2021. I'm recommending it all the time. If you're looking for a way as a mom to grow, as a student to grow, as, as a leader in the marketplace to grow, highly recommend this book, Rare Leadership. It's an acronym that is stay relationally connected, act like yourself, return to joy, and endure hardship. That's the, the letters to rare. But we just studied this chapter on identity. And he says that identity is actually this thing that we establish together. This is who we are. And then the community says, this is how we live. And we don't live this way to get the identity, but because of who we are, this is how we live. And the scriptures do that for us. The scriptures say, hey, Christian, the way you're living isn't in keeping with your identity. And it's a redemptive move to say, whoa, whoa, this is out of bounds. And it stings when someone says that. It hurts when someone says that. It can be embarrassing when someone says that. But if it's a pathway and an invitation back into a true living out of your identity, then it's a massive Gift. So these passages that name stuff, and maybe as I read through them, you're going like, dang, that's me. Ah, that's last night. Shoot, that's the way I happened through this whole entire pandemic. I've been doing that this entire place. Would you hear these corrections as invitations back into the relationship that God has for you so that you begin to live in ways that aren't diluted, but actually do preserve against the decay? And don't join the darkness, but actually begin to push it back so that God gets glory and those around you can see God for who he really is. It seems like an amazing 
uh, risk the Lord took to entrust to his people his reputation. And yet through repentance and through brokenness, he tends to glorify himself as broken people like you and me continue to return to the one who is the light of the world. You are these things because it's who God actually is. God's the one who holds back decay. God is the one who pushes back darkness. Jesus would stand and say, I am the light of the world. And so because we look at him, there's a space even in Psalm 34, 8, where it says, taste and see the Lord is good. The rest of that verse goes on to say, and blessed are those who find their refuge in God. That it's a place where we run to when we need Help And so even this morning as we're confronted with our identity and our indiscriminate identity building and we struggle to realize, hey, I actually haven't lived like light or lived like salt, I can run back to Jesus who is my refuge. And in doing that, I actually taste and see. I remember the goodness and the sweetness of his grace and his mercy that I wasn't earning my love and righteousness through my behavior. He's the one who did it for me. And that actually now liberates and frees me to engage in a world around me that desperately needs to hear that there's hope. We can proclaim hope and we can pursue transformation as a people as we taste and see the Lord is good and join him in what he's doing as a pushback darkness and preserve against the decay. And then remember, it's coming as common things. These are things that are from the bottom up. These are not political agendas from the top down. These are not things that are laced with power. They're things that are marked by the beatitudes of meekness and, and lowliness and this brokenness and this place where you feel undone, it's in that space that we actually shine light and are salty in the world. Let me just give you a couple of applications. Maybe would you just consider these things? Would you just reflect on where you might be in danger of blending your identity from what God gives you with what the world tells you you should have? Where is that dilution or pollution or mixing actually a temptation for you? What is the thing? Is it power? Is it approval? Is it comfort? Is it control? What's the thing that you indiscriminately grab a hold of? Where might you be in danger like salt of losing its saltiness by mixing who God says you are with who the world promises you could be if you would just take matters into your own hands? Would you just take some time and reflect? Where might you be in danger there? Number two, where might you be tempted to hide or withdraw? If lights should be up on hills, if they should be seen as you're driving through the country from miles away, if they should be on cities where people can be drawn in, if they should be in homes that the whole thing is lit, not hidden, where might you be tempted to hide or to withdraw? Jesus says, be in the world but not of the world. Where are you tempted not to be in the world? Where are you pulling back out of fear? Or maybe it's shame of your past. Maybe it's places of insecurity. You just name those and ask God to meet you there. And then I think we actually get explicit descriptions and commands and explanations and vision for how do we live salt and light in the rest of these chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. So so would you, as number three, as an application, would you just begin to pray now that as we walk through these passages, God would engage your heart in such a way that he shapes you? that he exposes things that are not where he wants them to be, and he calls you to himself, that you would be confronted and encouraged, that you would have a vision for what it looks like to actually be salt and light in this world. Because, friends, we don't really know. We haven't been given great examples. I don't think our culture has helped us very much. I don't even think a Christian subculture in America for hundreds of years, I don't think it set us up great to know how to do this. Because there were Christian versions of power and approval and comfort and control that got confused with the rest of what the world offered us. And it came in a space where it has a really, really, really high cost to us. So would you just ask that God would shape you, that he would expose things, that he would help you see in the next couple of chapters? And maybe I just name this for you. Would you just be aware of where you might be resistant when we hit lust and money and anxiety and praying and giving and serving? You just pay attention to where you feel some resistance and, and then bring that to the Lord. So, so where might you be in danger of polluting? Where might you be in danger of hiding? You just ask God to speak to you in the next couple of months. We're not in a hurry as a community. God is a patient, gracious God. He wants to work in his people over the long haul, and he invites you this morning to repent and be free. And we take reminders of that provision for freedom and that provision for forgiveness when we take communion. It's a way for us to taste and see the Lord is good. And so I want to move us that direction as we kind of make application in our hearts and pray. 
Would you grab the communion elements? And if you didn't get a chance to, they're in the back of the room. There's also some here in the front. I'm just going to give you some space as Roxanne begins to play to just pray and ask God to speak to you. You have a cracker on one side that represents the broken body of Christ and some juice on the other side that represents the shed blood of Christ for your forgiveness and your redemption. You get a chance this morning to taste and to see that God is good, that he established your identity for you as a Christian, and you get to ask him to help you live into that. And whatever he's stirring in your heart, you get to bring to him either for repentance or encouragement or for help. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. This is a time for Christians to kind of restore and renew and ask God to engage with their hearts. And so you can pray where you are in your seat, ask God to speak to you, ask him to show himself to you, ask him to help you to believe if he's really real. You can pray where you are. Don't take communion if you're not a follower of Jesus, but, but engage Christ and maybe even take Christ for the first time by trusting him. You could do that by saying, God, I've tried to build an identity apart from you. And I believe you died on the cross in my place to actually make a way for me to have a secured identity with you. You did that to forgive me of my sins. I trust in you. Would you please forgive me and come into my life and save me? That, that kind of prayer is what it sounds like to turn to God. If you want to do that, I'll be up here at the front. We'd love to talk with you about that. So just take a moment. Let me pray for you. Take communion when you're ready, and then we will sing again. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for being the light of the world, coming into our world to rescue and to save us. Would you speak now to my brothers and sisters? I don't know if they're feeling overwhelmed. I don't know if they're feeling shame. I don't know if they feel numb. God, would you speak to them? Would you help? Would you draw them close? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take communion when you're ready, and then we'll sing together again. for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.